0: you yeah. folks, and welcome to The Darkling Podcast, episode number 17. Uh, for those listeners of you who don't know, The Darkling is Darker Days' sister show, where we focus on material that is submitted by or created by our listeners or other points of general interest. Tonight on the show, uh, I'm joined by my uh, regular companion, Mike. And for the first time, uh, guesting on Darker Days and on The Darkling is Chris. Well, welcome aboard, guys. Hello. This is Chris. Hi. How
1: are you all doing? It's a pleasure to be here. Or may not be. We'll see.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yo, what's up dudes? Yo. Um tonight all on right. the Darkling Podcast we're gonna be taking a look at ghouls, um specifically via the medium of Ghoul's Fatal Addiction, the source book for Vampire the Masquerade and then we're going to take a closer look at them in the Requiem game and also take a more general examination of retainers in the World of Darkness and maybe draw in some inspiration from a couple of the other World of Darkness games and maybe even one or two ideas from outside the World of Darkness to enhance your experience of the minions of the night. Uh, We feature a review that's been sent our way by Marquis von Vimenis on Ghoul's Fatal Addiction, and we'll be getting round to that right shortly, and then joining you again afterwards for some more expansive discussion of the same.
2: Good evening, this is Marquis. Tonight I'm going to be talking about Ghoul's Fatal Addiction, a supplement for Vampire the Masquerade. It was released during White Wolf's Year of the Ally in 1997, along with a slew of other supplements detailing the Allies and subordinate factions of the main races of the Old World of Darkness. This supplement gives you the opportunity to play as ghouls, mortals fed a steady diet of vampire blood, rendering them immune to the march of time, as well as granting them some of the powers of their masters. As can well be imagined, a ghoul's life is far from easy their consumption of their master's or domitor's blood creates a powerful but artificial emotional bond towards them. They are also mostly used as pawns, assets and tools, as they can operate during the daylight hours and thus interact with the mortal world to a far greater extent than their masters. As can be guessed by looking at the cover, Ghoul's Fatal Addiction is a bit more of an adult supplement than some of the other Vampire the Masquerade books. Um, There is an inherent eroticism and sensuality to be found in the relationship between a ghoul and their domitor, which is something that not every group will want to go into, but can certainly be interesting if done right. The book proper begins in Chapter 1, which, interestingly enough, is written from the point of view of a noted Malkavian character in the metaplot, Dr. Netchurch. In his study of um, ghouls that is used as this chapter, he highlights some of the physiological changes brought on by the process of ghouling. Ghouls can use blood to heal, pump their physical abilities, and power the disciplines their dormitors teach them. The blood also halts cell decay, so ghouls do not age. Of course, these perks also come with downsides, and ghouls must be cautious with with the vitae they imbibe. Vampires generally give seldom and little of themselves, and the emotional and physical symptoms of withdrawal can have very serious consequences for ghouls and the people around them. Overdose is also possible and Knindalagur with a beast as potent as their masters, as well as causing problems with oxygen and nitrogen levels in the blood, and permeating fluids such as tears and sweat with blood. They may also, if they drink too much of their master, develop the clan flaws of their master's particular bloodline. Chapter 2, in my opinion, is one of the most interesting ones in the book. It is presented in the format of a transcript, of a seminar conducted by a secret ghoul society known as the Enmastered, who will be discussed later. Throughout the piece, the lecturer offers a refreshingly different perspective on the childer of Cain. The followers of Set, for example, contrary to most vampires, he typifies as a genuine threat. He reasons that, in order to further their aims of corruption, They give their mortal thralls and friends everything they could possibly desire, inspiring fierce loyalty and friendship. If you're one of those players or storytellers who have encountered the dreaded Fishmalk before, you'll be quite pleased to read the Malkavian section, which dispels any notion of bunny slippers or, well, fish and exposes Malkavians for the terrifying, unstable monsters that they truly are. The rest of the chapter exposes the norm in the different clans and how they treat their ghouls, and there are some very interesting story and character ideas to be found in here. The Lusombra, for instance, following their strong social-Darwinist philosophy, despise ghouls, but some still keep them as groomers, as, lacking a reflection, they have no ability to groom themselves ghouls of other clans can face similar problems from fickle and abusive dormitors toreador ghouls for example must constantly dance an awkward and delicate dance to maintain their dormitors favor chapter three details the systems for creating ghoul characters specifically it allows you to choose from three character types Vassals are ghouls as most imagine them, under the thrall of their domitols. Independents are ghouls who have broken free from their master's control, and must now survive on their own, either by stalking their former masters and taking their fix by force, or by hiring themselves out as mercenaries and contractors to enterprising vampires. Finally, the supplement allows you to create and play a character hailing from one of the Revenant families of the Sabbat. Created through the intense breeding programs and biological tinkering of the Clan Samitsi, a Revenant family is made by breeding Vitae-infused ghouls with one another, and feeding infants vampire blood from birth. The result is that Revenant's bodies produce their own supply of Vitae, and age and mature at a much slower rate than regular humans. This as well as aberrations caused by inbreeding and being brought up in a thoroughly inhuman environment, means that each revenant family, although more potent than most ghouls, inherit certain family flaws and generally have trouble blending in with mortal society and its standards. The templates and storytelling chapters provide a number of interesting ideas for chronicles, stories, as well as characters. The storytelling chapter details secret ghoul societies as well that you can use in games or chronicles. The Unmastered, a group of ghouls and revenants who offer protection and support to ghouls escaping abusive or absent domitors, are especially interesting. They could easily be introduced into a game or chronicle as a possible ally or even a threat. The character templates are also very good. One in particular illustrates the problems of a ghoul developing a jealous streak in their personality. Another illustrates some of the psychological aberrations that can develop in a revenant character. Ironically, Ghoul's Fatal Addiction proves itself, in my regards at least, to be one of the best and most thematically powerful books in the entire Masquerade line. It allows for the telling of racy, passionate, obsessive psychodramas and unparalleled role-playing opportunities. As mentioned in the storytelling section of the book, there is perhaps no better way to show the horror that vampires can represent than through different eyes, ones that, more likely than not, will be gouged out on their master's whims. This is Marquis, and I'd like to thank you for listening.
3: All right, Ghoul's Fatal Addiction uh, I, I'm just going to lead off uh, this is actually the first source book I ever read uh, it was very oh, wow. awkward purchasing it from Borders, I actually <laughs> flipped it over so the cashier would not see the cover with the uh, <clears throat> the bondage chicks on it and like the weird mm-hmm. vampire and stuff
1: uh, I cover. distinctly remember getting my first vampire book and my mother looking at it and going, oh that's nice and well <laughs> no complaints at that end but, Excellent.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it's a fascinating book, and that's a, a great little review there by uh, by Marquis. Um, I didn't realize it was that old. You know, he says at the beginning, "This is from the from the year of the Ally," and I'm thinking, "No, it's not. It's got to be from at least 2000." And mm-hmm. oh no, no, wait, he's right. It is. It's it's like year 1997. 97, 97, 98, or something. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, it's yeah, it goes back. But it's a yeah, like he says in the review, and an exceptionally thorough and in-depth look at the creatures across the board.
3: One thing I really liked was the the Dr. Nat Church section that he discussed a little bit, because it goes through and talks about their anatomy, also talks about different factions within the ghouls and all that. And it's pretty cool because it's also annotated by Beckett and Lucida, who are you know, two of the favorite uh, signature characters for Vampire the Masquerade.
0: Um, what I liked about it was um, the, the idea that you can focus upon ghouls as the central figures in your chronicle, Um, I always thought it would be an interesting idea to have uh, Vampire the Masquerade Chronicle where the player characters are ghouls um, for at least uh, some part of the chronicle, if not the entirety of it, and where actual vampires almost never appear, where they are these really horrifying, sinister, destructive forces that lurk in the background of your world. So if you have, for example, the characters and members of some of the Revenant families, which are discussed well, in a lot of places, actually, but uh, but in the Ghoul's Fatal Addiction book. Um, and maybe uh, one of the actual vampires, their domitors only turns up once or twice in the Chronicle. Um, I'm not a big comic book fan, but um, I remember reading a, a discussion of, uh, I think it was a Superman comic years ago. I don't even remember what the comic was or in what context. But the reviewer made this comment that the uh, the writer of the comic book had portrayed the Man of Steel as something of an earthbound god. Who, uh, whose presence is almost noted more by the after effects of him having passed through the world. And I, I always thought that kind of image always st- uh, stuck with me. And I thought that would be a fascinating way f- in a, a ghoul-based chronicle to portray vampires. They're these things that are so far beyond your level of power that when one turns up, it's like, you know, it's like a hurricane that passes right through your world and totally upends things and totally revokes things and, you uh, and, at the same time you're, you're horrified by its passage uh, but at the same time you're, you're desperate for, to come back again and I think this book manages to bring that concept out extremely well
1: It's very, um, then, you're suggesting it's very platonic because as a, as a ghoul, you can because of the, the mundane reality that they more easily exist in you can see how these rather powerful supernatural uh, actions ripple through into rather simple parts of everyday life but you exactly, can really yeah. go, that, that is because this vampire took down a certain company through whatever means he's used, such as, you know, subverting the CEO or uh, using mind control of some form or simply just killing everyone. And then yeah. seeing how that affects some guy because he can't pay his rent because he now doesn't have a job because the company went under. And yeah. Um, yeah that's that 's quite cool that that shows how horrific they are, and just beyond understanding because you just have no, for a normal person you have no idea why any of this has happened
0: definitely Scary. definitely yeah and, and and having having ghouls as your as your central focus allows you to you know you can shine some spotlight on it so they can understand a little bit of what 's going on, so they know there 's these kindred moving around behind the scenes, pulling the strings of the world, uh, and almost that proximity almost makes it worse because you understand your impotence all the more because you know what's what's coming you know what's caused it and you know you kind of have this this desperate almost well i guess as as the cover of the of the supplement uh, suggests this almost sadomasochistic yearning to be part of this world yet you know it. if you if you do it'll just destroy you hmm.
3: yeah and likewise it also introduces the independent or rogue ghouls who are no longer have the uh the dominator but they are trying to still keep up their ghoul powers and get blood from uh either bartering for it or hunting down other vampires. And it's very interesting that you get this whole uh very independent take on them, but they're also still very weak and it's a uh, it's interesting comparison to uh like Hunters Hunted, which also had these these lone wolf ghouls who were fighting vampires, but those ones mm. were a lot more like badass, I guess you could say.
0: I love the idea of ghoul mercenaries um selling their services to powerful vampires in return for blood. I thought that was a brilliant idea from this book and that's mm, one I'm yeah. certainly going to be using mm. in a game. Very very cool.
3: Great. Well, the last point I have about ghouls is that uh in the context of Vampire the Masquerade, a really cool fiction source is actually uh it's the second book in the Victorian Age Vampire Trilogy by Philip it's either Boul or Bouillet. Uh it's called mm-hmm. The Madness of Priests and the main character at that point is a ghoul herself and it's very interesting. Um uh, Really takes into account what has been written previously in *Vampire the Masquerade*
1: regarding ghouls. Oh, cool! No, I haven't read that. No, I've not even. Well, I've not had the joy of touching vam- *Vampire vi- uh, Victorian Age*, but um, to have an actual a, a book, a novel discussing ghouls and seeing the world through their eyes is uh, extremely useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gonna be one. really cool. Mm.
0: I also like the idea of um, having ghouls. Uh, especially if they're if they're of a revenant family, that the idea that once in a generation or once every 20 years um, the the, the domitor turns up and selects one for the embrace, so you can have this this crazy bloodlust competition, uh, you know, political backstabbing all the way down to actual outright fights to be the the one left standing who's going to be chosen by, you know, sinister Uncle Ivan when he next comes calling uh, to receive immortality. I think that would be an awful lot of fun to uh, to portray. And I think what's what's also particularly good about Ghoul's Fatal Addiction, if if you, you know, take the mechanics out of it, um, the, the fluff and setting elements uh, port just as well over to the modern game as well. That I say modern game, I mean the, the New World of Dynasty Requiem. Mm i'm um, sure you can't use all of the clans that are there but there's enough similarity in the archetypes that you can uh you know you can map them to the to the modern clans and covenants fairly well and the, the general concept of a ghoul really hasn't changed that much um although as i believe you were saying uh earlier on chris the the way that requiem approaches ghouls and the thoroughness uh, with which it treats them um really really does bear further examination
1: yeah i mean we'll get more into that when we look at uh Re, uh, requiem's own book on ghouls but um the added layer within that book is the whole fact you have um, not only how clans make use of their ghouls but that how their use is then further colored by whichever covenant they belong to and um, it's quite diverse and uh, uh, very in, very interesting again can definitely be ported back into masquerade um, in in some sense um, does Ghouls' facial addiction. Addiction. Look at um, how the Sabbat look at ghouls. I'm sure they there's a must be some parts of that uh, book that talks about how the Sabbat make use of ghouls or their view on them. It must be quite horrific. Yes, I remember one point
3: was that uh, I'm pretty sure this is a Sabbat. They they don't usually use ghouls too much because they have the shovel heads, but uh, mm. one use they had was making a whole bunch of ghouls and giving them guns and sending them out hunting in Lupine Territory. And if they kill <laughs> one or two, good enough. Yes, that's a good old setup for you right there. Actually, I just remembered um, there's some pretty funky things in there. First off, Ghouls Fail Addiction is probably one of the most mature White Wolf titles that is not Black Dog. There's some really messed up stuff in there. And one I remember is the games they play with the ghouls, kind of like um, in Elysium and stuff. One's mm. like they have him binge drink blood and see what happens. I remember it's, yeah, it's pretty messed up. Excellent, they
1: also excellent. have bits like um, being used as furniture or elaborate candelabra holding candles, but being told not to move, in you know, and being killed if they do, and having to endure the pain of being scorched by this. Yeah, Requiem Ghoul's is equally filled with as many horrible acts that vampires make their ghouls do or do to them. Um, there's one wonderful line where um, where it talks about the devas' use of the ghouls and just how every ghoul doesn't look forward to when their master comes home in a very bad mood. And, of course, yeah, deva, vigor. Well, that's going to be some pretty nasty broken bones and bruises. There. <laughs> but, you know, they accept it because they love their master. Um, excellent. Do um Does... Um, does ghouls' fatal addiction also include anything about uh, animal ghouls or plant-based ghouls? You know the man, uh, mandragora that is um, that requiem talks about. Mm, there
3: are animal ghouls. It's actually got some statistics for that, but uh, nothing about plant ghouls. Those did not exist in Masquerade, as far as ah. I know. Um, and actually, I think this is a good point to move over to ghouls in the requiem setting. If uh... definitely
1: yes, yeah, sure.
0: So they have a the, the the book for Requiem is just called Ghouls.
1: It's just called Ghouls. Um, it's laid out into two primary chapters. Um, the first part it simply looks at what a ghoul is, and it looks at the ghouls based on each clan and then each covenant. It then goes into ghouls' families and bloodlines and how you create those. And it starts dealing with the uh, nasty subject of incest, um, and then it looks into animal ghouls and, of course, the plant ghouls, the mandragora, which is something which is very cool, um, as in that they they go to the, they make these ghouled plants that feed on vampire blood. The way they change and how they they can take this um, this sap. That they can drink as a uh, that has addictive properties for vampires, and then the second part really looks more at the game effects of being a ghoul and for each of the families. So they inter- they put forward five sample ghoul families, one based on each of the clans, which is quite obvious. And
0: um, are those are those similar to are those similar to the revenant families in in masquerade? In idea, um,
1: yeah, they're they're exactly the same idea. So. They don't need to be constantly topped up with a uh, feeding of blood. They they gain all the benefits of being a ghoul, but they are not having to seek out blood every few you know every month or so. Instead, they have all the benefits and and they're born really with this this need to perform services for a vampire. And then wow. vampires come along to the to these families and select from them servants or. Possible proteges and uh,
0: and someone to embrace. Um, so, I mean, let's let's just um, just dial back a little bit there. These yeah. Andragora things. I'm, I'm not overly familiar with uh, with Requiem's take on ghouls. So, are, the, are these? Do these things start out as normal plants that are just in you know they're exactly that they they, they that. That are, they are instead of uh, given blood instead of water.
1: Yeah, they they're, um, they are plants which are fed. Over time, uh, vitae and it has a an effect upon them. So, uh, I'll just check my wonderful notes on here because there's loads of bits to this. Um, so generally, they choose very tough, hardy plants. So, a cactus would possibly be very good for this, um, or vampire trees, cactus. even, That's yeah, fantastic. vampire cactus. <laughs> Insane. Literally, any plant you can think of that can endure lots of hardship would. Be the perfect uh, choice to ghoul. It seems very strange talking about plants, and I'm going to ghoul this plant. But anyway, um, and then it can simply survive on blood. It no longer needs uh, any form of uh, nutrients in the soil. It no longer needs water. It no longer needs light. Uh, the plant becomes more sickly looking, um, so darker leaves, pop mark, you know, pop or or mottled effects on the leaves. And then it begins to grow inward. So the way it talks about this is that the leaves twist and grow inward. So it's almost kind of gathering around this uh, gathered vitae within it. Wow. And then here's the final kicker with all these. First of all, these plants will feed on any blood then given to them. And they will s- try and slowly move towards it. So mm-hmm. these plants can move if, if only small distances or lash out with their vines, um, and their leaves will point towards any source of blood that walks by them, vitae or normal mortal blood. Oh, interesting. So they're quite horrific in that sense. So one of the examples given, which is a, a, a type of mandragora which is uh, kept by one of the ghoul families, is a willow tree but becomes completely black. And the danger is, of course, being entwined in its uh, branches that droop yeah. down, which is great. And then the sap that I talked about, which is called the lacrima, which is um, literally a sap which you just drain off these plants, so you can feed vampires can feed upon it instead of using blood. And the way they describe it is a strange but queerly tasting sap which they enjoy. And which, as I said, leads to addiction. And plus, you can poison people with it. Normal mortals can just be poisoned. So, yeah, That's Mandagora are totally, totally cool. And of course, when you consider the type of covenants within Requiem, there are definite culprits for who would love to create these things. You know, the Ordo yeah. Dracul or the Circle of the Crone, because it's the perfect example of experimentation or the the act of creation
0: do the mandragora gain any kind of sentience beyond a, a a rudimentary knowledge of where to find blood
1: no they just basically become predatory and okay, right. seek out blood when they can get it. Um, it we're not talking little shop of horrors here
0: <laughs> i had a, i had an npc started out for a dark sun game based on a, an undead intelligent hunting cactus called uh, lord Doomspike. but that's that's neither here nor there um so who, who wrote this book because it sounds like a, a crazy set of ideas Let's have a look.
1: I've got it in front of me just in case I want to reference anything else. Um, But we have authors are are Darcy and Anastasia, Carl Bowen and Rick Chilott, Ray Fox and Ian Price, who are um, names that don't I don't recall as often as others. No, um, Carl Bowen.
3: Come on, guys! He wrote *Predator and Prey*, Vampire.
1: Yeah, well, I, I I'm uh, a bit bad with my author list. I usually just go straight into the content and indulge myself. But um, yeah, it's a it's a definitely a great book to read. This one, um, and the artwork is excellent throughout.
0: Um, and it's it's a soft cover, presumably.
1: It's uh, I have this in PDF, so I oh, okay, right. but uh, it, I, I think it's a hardcover. C- have seen it, and it's hardcover, as all these things are back in the day, because it's quite an old book. It's um, let me just get the date on this one. Uh, this one is 2005. So, because I remember. Oh wow! It, okay. Yeah,
0: it's quite a, yeah, an early point, one. Early book. Yeah. Outstanding.
3: Very cool. I actually have uh, a few points I came up with because uh, I actually read the Requiem Core book, thoughts on ghouls this morning, and. Uh, one thing that came up is that each month, when a ghoul is fed vitae, either the the vampire or the ghoul has to use a point of willpower, and that's that's pretty extreme. I know what they're doing with this. They're trying to make it so that a PC didn't just like make an army of ghouls and have them hunt lupines or something, um, but. The, the paragraph that was explaining this doesn't really describe why or how that, that willpower is spent. It just says that here's the requirement, but there's no, like, story reason why. So I was thinking, like, maybe we could put our heads together and, and come up with some ideas of,
0: of why this would be occurring. Well, Mage does something similar with that uh, with Legacies, which is a sort of... Um, it's a, They call it often the Zed Splat between your... Uh, um, you know the the usual kind of x and y splats that it has in there the five mm. by five they have a this additional one which is a relationship between a, a personal relationship between a mentor and a student where a mentor can teach a student these various abilities um, that fall outside the purview of the normal um i want to call them spheres but they're called arcana in <laughs> anyway uh, yeah um uh, and then in there there's uh there's a willpower expenditure that goes on uh, while the the student is um dedicating themselves to learning these new magical talents or where the teacher is dedicating themselves to teaching them and in the first case it's actually a willpower dot that gets spent if i'm unless i'm very much mistaken and then thereafter it's willpower points um so i i could be something as simple as um, perhaps the ghoul itself is spending the willpower to prevent itself from attacking the vampire Um, in just a frenzy of bloodlust where it gets this overwhelming addictive rush um, and just you know wants more and more and more and might throw itself at the, uh, the vampire in, a, in a, a frenzy of hunger. So on, on the part of the ghoul, maybe the willpower represents the, the creature holding itself back. And likewise, from the point of the, uh, of the vampire, maybe it, the willpower point represents the vampire um, ju- forcing itself just to give the ghoul enough to prevent a, a frenzy or to prevent itself from feeding on the ghoul um, when, when the bloodlust arises on either of them. I don't know. That could work.
1: Or it's maybe the very act of really passing on the curse itself through the blood i mean it has to be um forced upon the ghouls it, in a it's almost like that point of willpower is the vampire corrupting the ghoul's soul in some way through the mm. blood and and also it's like the the very act of forcing upon them the super, you know the the disciplines themselves and really allowing them to master um that this the vitae that they're given.
0: Um, so just the, so just the exchange of blood is not enough there has to be something uh, there has to be something spiritual going on there you're saying the vampire yeah. has, to, has to almost imprint its own curse upon upon the, the ghoul mm-hmm. cool i like that
3: very interesting and uh that kind of point about willpower actually got me thinking about something which is a little finicky between vampire the masquerade and vampire the requiem so requiem's supposed to have more vampires correct
1: um I wouldn't say more. I always imagine it was some something about the same. I can't uh, remember the numbers in Requiem off by heart where it suggests the ratio of vampires to humans in the city, but it's it's variable though, obviously. All right. Well, let's just say that there's more because I
3: for okay. some reason, <laughs> I, for some reason remember this. Um <laughs> there's like more vampires and I would guess more ghouls, but you have to, like, spend willpower to uh, to make a ghoul and then spend dots to make another vampire to embrace them in Requiem. So why are there more if it's so much tougher? And one interesting thing about, you know, the differences between Masquerade and Requiem is that Requiem, it's a lot harder to, to hunt and feed, and that's something they really like to drive home. It's not like Masquerade, where
0: you can kind of, like, brush it under the rug sometimes. You take some dots in herd and then just roll a few dice. and Yeah, exactly. away. Yeah. I don't know, I think, I mean... <laughs> Just, to, just to take a side view on that, I, the idea of having to spend willpower to embrace, uh, you know, dots or, or points mm. to uh, to create ghoul, I, I suppose that would be one of the first house rules I would import into a masquerade game from Requiem, just because I think it's such a damn cool idea. Um, but to, to answer your question more directly, uh, gives me the impression then that the you might want to say then that the vampires of Requiem are more driven because they are they they're spending this um this willpower and yet they're regaining it so they're, they're clearly acting in such a way as to uh, as to restore these these temporary or or semi-permanent losses mm-hmm. and that, that strikes me as you, that portrays to me creatures who are far more driven uh, far more needy far more hungry uh, far more uh compelled by their curse to, re- to restore their their their, um, their lost uh, reserves when they've expended them in this way
1: well, yeah. after all, they're be driven because the um, the willpower is representative of the only thing that's stopping them become becoming more depraved monsters. So yeah, yeah, it's it's the dance macabre for you. They're gonna have to keep doing things that to keep them away from that drop into the abyss. And
0: <laughs> yeah, being a vampire is hard, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's a nice that's a nice mechanical way to portray that. Then you know the... the, the the system there reinforces the setting idea of this, you know, dance around the spiral to stop yourself slipping over the edge and you know, down the plug hole. Mm. Uh, you have you have a system there that represents that extremely well then with the, the willpower expenditure. I like that.
1: I think willpower expenditure and more importantly the the regaining willpower in games in general, I find sometimes a little hard to make players remember to 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 make use of that mechanic when yeah, you have yeah. these virtues and vices there. And, um, I guess sometimes the players don't realize that they're implicitly already regaining willpower. If they only just paid attention to that, oh yeah, I'm acting with my vice. Yeah, I'll have that willpower point back, please. And maybe it's a bit of GM, uh, interaction there. The SC just going, oh yeah, yeah, have a willpower. You acted in character enough. You deserve it. So, um... Yeah. I think that's the only point I have with willpower in a ga- when running a game, is remembering having players remember, Yes, take them, take
0: them, please, please. They'll save <laughs> you later from dying, or something, or something worse. Well, I uh, agree with the, the the Mage Chronicle I'm running at the moment. It's it's Ascension, but we've uh, imported as a house rule the, the the virtue vice concept although we do it mm. through uh i think it's through nature i've chosen um okay, indulge yeah. indulging in the positive or negative side of your nature mage the ascension revised it quite a good take on that uh will get you one or two points of willpower but again yeah like you say my players often forget um that they have this extra stat and i thought it would be a great way to to bring nature and demeanor to the forefront in the game and instead they just forget it's there so <laughs> yeah it's definitely something for the storyteller to. Uh, um, to be a little more on the ball about, I think. And, uh, and the game can benefit from that kind of attention. I guess we, we can, can move the move conversation
3: to over to other retainers in the, uh, in the new and old World of Darkness. Just to start off... Well, I just want to bring up that when you look at the old World of Darkness, they pretty much always shoehorn some kind of retainer in there.
0: For Werewolf, you had the Kenfolk. For Mage, yeah. you had acolytes and consorts and grogs and all sorts of weird terms for the same thing, yeah.
3: Okay, and uh, Demon had the, uh, the fallen followers. And one that never, ever did it for me was the Hunter Bystander. Because the way it was portrayed in the fiction of Hunter just never came through very well. It always just seemed like it was some sidekick, basically. I'm not sure how familiar you two
0: are with the Hunter the Reckoning line, but... Not familiar whatsoever. Not much at all. I've looked at the core book a few times uh, for antagonists, but I'm not familiar with the bystander system now. Gotcha. Well, bystanders are basically... uh, The way they're explained in the
3: core book is that they are someone who got the calling, but then just ran away because they couldn't deal with it. They didn't know what was going on. Uh, So they're kind of aware that there's something wrong with the world, but they don't have all the imbued powers. Right. Now, sometimes they get dragged in to help out a hunter because maybe that hunter acted and then remembers that they were there and know what's going on. But the way it's portrayed a lot is they're just like, they're either that bystander that ran away or it's just like a guy's friend or buddy or, or young like son, maybe uh, that's just dragged into it and doesn't have like a, doesn't have the same like mental strain you would think. And just kind of like blindly accepts that all these bad things are going on. Uh, one, one poor portrayal was in the uh, the Hunter book Defender that I was reading. It just, just didn't fly.
0: Well, that the the initial concept then of, of a bystander as being someone who's received the call or been exposed to the supernatural world and has run away, I think is an incredibly powerful concept. And I think to get the most out of them, you'd need to focus upon that quite closely. Um, mm-hmm. And like you say, really portray the mental strain that these individuals are under, either as non-player characters or as player characters um, and if you're going to use them as npcs um i think what you've got there is a an excellent uh, dark mirror almost of the player characters so if you have the player characters are so the hunters who have thrown themselves whole half-heartedly or whatever into the uh, into the hunt as it were you can have these uh the bystanders show how much this how much this has the potential to break you um and perhaps reflect on the idea that perhaps the hunter himself is broken and doesn't realize it you know if you if you have the bystander as this this somewhat shattered individual someone who's been messed up by the experience you can use that to to help the hunter character reflect upon the fact that well maybe you're broken too but you just haven't noticed it and you're actually more like this guy than you realize
1: (laughs) that's definitely something that's also that um that use of a uh of uh, that form of retainer so I think that comes up in um, the way the ghouls are also used in, um, in the Requiem Ghouls as well, is that they they often it, take on a ghoul as someone to keep the vampire in check and to bring them back from the edge and to make sure that they realise you're going too far, so that's um, definitely very useful, especially in, especially in Mage even, that would be Extremely powerful to have someone that's your acolyte and going no, you're you're delving into too too much occult knowledge there and going off the rails. Can you not yeah, see definitely. this? Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, very cool. And mage has got a lot of a lot of opportunities to uh, to develop acolytes um, in a number of interesting ways. Um, I'll get onto that again in, in a second. But um, I don't know, uh, Mike. What would what would how would you tackle the bystander issue? Do you think to make them more vivid and, and, and useful in the game?
3: You, you kind of did cover it. They they make very interesting NPCs, someone that uh, perhaps the player characters go to because they saw them when they were all given the message and imbued, and they there's someone that's scared, doesn't understand what's going on. Uh, mm. I don't typically see them as, like, the, the battling adventure types that would then, you know, they see their mistake and they join the group of hunters to take down the bad guys or something. That just doesn't seem like the correct course of action. I think that's one of the reasons why I have problems with... Uh, with how the bystanders are come up in Hunter, they always seem like they're they're doing the fighting and they're fighting the good fight with the with the other imbued, as opposed to just trying to avoid it as much as possible, and avoid yeah. that knowledge.
0: Right. So what what is interesting about bystanders is um, you can draw inspiration for them from uh, numerous well, occult horror films, supernatural films. Um, they they appear as. fairly stark characters in a lot of these films like in The Omen and um, I think there's something like that in End of Days and in the Prophecy films. You know, often you'll see them portrayed as, oh, I don't know, um, an occult or vampire hunter who's fallen into alcoholism or some crazy priest who's uh, seen the face of the Antichrist in his breakfast cereal, and now he hides out in his hotel room the whole time, plastering all the walls with pages from the Bible and crosses. Um, or like the priest from the Omen film, who's horribly burnt and disfigured and stuck out in the monastery, yet he's still able to point the protagonist in the direction of uh, of um, the jackal's grave and that kind of thing. So there's some strong archetypes or stereotypes there that you can go to in fiction for for inspiration, which I think can work quite well.
1: I would say the um, for Hunter in particular, possibly one of the best examples of, of a bystander is um, the Blade films with uh, Whistler. He's old, oh, yeah. he's mm. been there, yeah, done yeah. that, dying of cancer. So, yeah, he's fighting all these supernatural creatures, but, you know, mortality has caught up with him, and so what's he do? He makes guns, so... <laughs> <laughs> and he has, obviously, a, a cynical view on vampires and, uh, and people that are... are almost turned by vampires which is shown in the first blade film his view to um the doctor uh karen i remember her last name but she she's bitten and he's like oh yeah just put it down you know you bring about yeah. strays but you know blade chooses not to for his own folly maybe but it's yeah. a good yeah, counterpoint that's, that's
0: a very good example well stepping then away from from uh, from Hunter for a moment uh, we mentioned mage a minute ago and uh, mage has a, a number of different ranks of retainer from um, those who are your you know who who are your cultists who maybe believe in the supernatural but don't have any real experience of it to those who have no real understanding of the supernatural at all probably don't even know you're a mage but nevertheless serve and help you to those who are semi awakened or semi aware members of uh, your direct inner circle To those who are partially awakened or what they used to call static uh, mages and sorcerers and there's all these different kind of gradations of it and a a number of the examples we've given so far can apply uh, equally to those especially the one that you mentioned Chris about having uh, the acolyte be a reflection of the mage in some way or form to help ground them in reality while they're busy Mm -hmm. uh, um, you know trying to to call down the supernal into their bedroom Um, And uh, Ascension had an interesting, uh, I think it was called Ascension's Right Hand, actually, an interesting source book on, on acolytes. Uh, and in there, it had rules for uh, for developing characters, you know, everything from the guy down the street right the way through to some strange, familiar creature from the spirit world that you managed to embody inside a, a physical form. So for mages, as far as the retainers go, it it doesn't even need to be human. It can be completely out there, you know. Completely oh, God, right yeah. Yeah. Um, but w- one of the strongest things I think about uh, mages, in, by either ascension and awakening, um, doesn't actually come from the Mage game at all, and in fact draws back to Ars Magica, um, which is in a certain respect one of the one of the, the, the predecessors of Mage, at least in concept, as hmm. not in an execution. And in there, they had this thing called troop play, where uh, the mages, a lot of the chronicles were based around chantries, the, the sort of um, the mage hideouts and headquarters. And often you would create a mage, but you would also create what they're called grogs, which are your acolytes and your, your retainers. And so you create your mage and a small handful of his servants uh, and acolytes. And then you would take turns in playing the mages. And, and also then you have stories based around the acolytes. And this kind of goes back to the, what we talked about at the, uh, near the beginning of the show um, about revenant families and ghouls where the vampires almost never appear. And I think you can get a really strong game uh, based around these you know, these lesser cultists and lesser adherents of a of a mage, where the mage himself um, could even be an NPC, or uh, or only played by one of the characters, or maybe the players share who gets to play the mage. Or this week you're going to get to play Porthos, and next week you know I'll be playing it. And uh, I think you uh, you can draw inspiration there for all of the World of Darkness games in a in a, in a way in a way to approach. Uh, these less powerful retainers living in a, in a supernaturally powerful world um, by taking the focus off the you know the more powerful supernatural creatures and placing it upon their servants and minions. That's and there's, really uh, cool. I, I think, I, I, I don't know if it was the, actually know. printed, but there was a Doctor Who game um, that talked about this idea where you people would take it in turns to play the Time Lord. Um, and and most of the gameplay would take place through the companions and you'd you know You'd kind of pass the doctor around the table as a as a shared character from week to week I think there's um, some fun ideas there could, that can be uh, imported into the world of darkness, too
1: hmm. very interesting within Awakening um, There isn't a book like you mentioned that's in ascension, but um no. I would guess the best place to go for that kind of thing is maybe Guardians of the veil because they talk about their mystery cults and how you build these up, and it's a right. it's a means to draw people through lower mysteries until as a way of a protecting the, the the Atlantean mysteries and magic so it doesn't fall into the wrong hands, but also selecting individuals who would be of worth. Um, I rem- my reading of that that's uh, a a good book for you know again development of cults and and. Kicking out individuals who would be useful for uh, an Atlantean mage's own needs and uh, help uh, to help them in some way. Another book, which is I think quite, I've been finding quite an excellent read. I've um, been looking at Seers of the Throne, oh, yeah. and one of the things I find entirely uh, just a, such a scary concept for a bunch of pentacle Majors is the fact that the very people that you're Fighting against aren't really the people you're meant to be fighting against. They are they are puppets manipulated by the mages of the of the seers. So they're they're orchestrated and used via either mundane things such as just money and mind control and simple magical tricks to things as grand as you know the profane urim or I believe in *The Throne* is there an upgraded version or something where because I haven't got to that point yet looking through the artifacts, but I believe there's meant to be one which allows not only the seer to take control of a person, a simple mortal, but to also use his magic through them. And Mm, that's kind of scary in the idea of the classic Matrix idea that you can't trust anyone because anyone could be an agent. That That same paranoia can be used. And again, there's nothing stopping player mage using those same tactics. A bit of mind magic, a bit of correspondence. You've got yourself a pawn to use against your enemies and they're none the wiser that you've attacked them.
0: Exactly, and it, work, it works similarly well in uh, in Mage: The Ascension, with the unawakened servants of the technocracy. Should you you know should you choose to use those mm. as uh, as antagonists, you know, do you really want to burst into the lab and fry poor Bob's brain just because he's working on some strange technocratic serum that he doesn't really understand? Um, yeah, uh, using them as antagonists again brings back the whole element of morality and humanity and responsibility that is so important in Mage games. And I think for for to see this kind of thing in actual play, you know, you. you you could do worse than um, checking out Dave B's uh, seminal actual play thread over on uh, RPG Net for the Broken Diamond um, which if you're a mage player of either Awakening or Ascension it's it's on the level of a must read, it's a fantastic uh, account of a chronicle and in there he's got, I think they're I think they're both player characters actually two of the player characters have a circle of retainers around them in the one case it's a drug gang um and in the other case it's a mystery cult uh where the the characters in the mist the npcs in the mystery cult that you know they're just sort of these uh like an interesting riff on 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 golden dawn wannabes to to go back to alistair Crowley, Mm -hmm. and um and on the other hand uh, in the drug in the drug gang you know well they're they're sort of drug gang bangers basically Mm -hmm. um and in both cases, uh, the story has a couple of really interesting twists and turns where the lives of the mages uh, are often kept separate. Their actual majorly goings-on are separate from the uh, the activities of these of these retainers. But every now and then they intersect, and you know completely wreck the lives of these poor retainers. And there's a great scene where the mages have to go to the mystery cult and pretend pretends to be members of the mystery cult when, of course, yeah. they are, in fact, real mages. And I think that kind of thing works really, really well. Well, what you've touched on there is quite important, just briefly going back to vampires, that there's
1: no reason why ghouls need to be aware that they are ghouls. And the same with mm, revenant yeah. families. Why Good would they point. even be aware of mm. it? It's just a, a curiosity.
0: Yes, And that's really with regard
1: to the mind control thing, well you know bit of vampires have disciplines that also allow them to act through their ghouls and in a, almost a very direct manner again pulling the strings so yeah may just filled with inspiration i think a lot of inspiration on how to use ghouls in more clever clever less uh, brutal ways i say brutal as in you're not just going yes my minions go attack him you're you're doing something more subtle in that you're using them as your, literally your, your face to, to wear it to a location to spy
0: on them. Brilliant, yes. Excellent. I like that. Yeah.
3: One other point that I just kind of wanted to bring up, because I was reading uh, yeah? Promethean the Creator this morning,
0: and uh, Prometheans yeah. cannot... Do I, do I have to go to the pub now?
3: No, 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 no. That's not <laughs> until uh, next episode. Okay. Um, Prometheans cannot take the retainer merit uh, and the reason is because they've got the the disquiet and the, the wasteland effects and all that. Yeah. But in a later uh, Promethean source book, it mentions the possibility that um, people that are descendants from a Promethean that reached mortality and became human might not be affected by the disquiet. Um, oh, okay. So that actually gives a pretty interesting way for there to be a retainer and um, someone who in effect could actually be perhaps even more powerful than the Promethean themselves simply because they already are human and they can act
1: as a guide to help them along in their journey. Worse than that, um, such a person because, um, who the Promethean can quite happily sit down and talk to on a, on a on a regular basis, um, could also act as a, as a, a direct foil, as in that the Promethean realizes, well, is being human really that great? Because this person mm. now is mm-hmm. human, can talk to him about it, and represents humanity for them in all its wonderful ways and ugly ways. could be the one turning point that makes Promethean into one of the manning.
0: Well, we've been talking about that throughout the show, the idea that the the retainer can help you know keep the uh, the supernatural creature grounded and and remind them of what how important humanity is but that's an excellent point that if you, if you flip that yeah you can have uh, a retainer perhaps you know portray the idea that maybe humanity is not such a great thing to want for after all with all its you know, foibles and flaws and failings and yeah that's that's a really nice point something i've
1: also used uh just recently this week just gone by in my changeling game uh changeling lost um I've made use of uh, one of the Centamani as an antagonist and their retainers, and this is brought up in, um, I'm trying to think which of the Promethean books it is, Pandora's Box, obviously. Um, the, the fact that the Centimani can actually keep a group of Pandorans as a form of retainer, you know, just feeding them a bit of flesh now and then so they're they're fed and sated and, but then they can make use of them to perform tasks and obviously learn more abilities from them in turn and um, that can lead to quite horrifying scenes where you have one of these creatures you know cutting off a pound of flesh and feeding it to this horde of of misgotten uh, children of the Prometheans mm.
0: Fun, I think it also works very well if you're playing, for example, a solo game or a game with only one or two players, mm. um, and it's, it lends itself especially well to the you know the whole road trip idea of a, of a Promethean game, um, where you might you know you might have one Promethean and then one of these retainers uh, on on whatever journey it's taking them, as opposed to just having a group of Prometheans. You have these two, you know, this sort of um, uh, double act thing going on. One wants to be human. Uh, and one is human, and, and how those, those two reflect off each other, I think that could work extremely well. I kind of twisted World of Darkness version on uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas.
1: <laughs> or Rain Man, or uh, Highway <laughs> to Man. Heaven even. Excellent. Highway to Heaven would be even the best example of that. Oh, serious. God. Anyway.
3: <laughs> cool. Chris, uh, you mentioned that when you look through the different covenants in, in uh, Ghouls for Requiem, there's some really good discussion of the different archetypes. So, could you like very quickly kind of talk about yeah. that and how it could be applied to other uh, World of Darkness games?
1: I'll mm. give you a really quick overview of each one. Um, basically, the Carthians—they're undecided with their ghouls. They're not too sure whether they should give them status or or keep them at the bottom. Because of course, the Carthians aren't too sure whether they should break the status quo, where ghouls are your servants and should be treated as such, or they should let them be equal to them, so Carthians have a real difficult time with ghouls, but of course they have it easier as in they can, Carthians want ghouls so they can connect to the modern world and understand it better, better than any of the others. Um, A very cool idea that's brought up um, in the Carthian section is about the idea of creating splinter cells of ghouls, so they're your blue-collar workers because the Carthians already know, let's not go for the top guy, that's been done before. Don't take over, the, don't ghoul the CAO because someone from the Invictus or whoever's already done that and they've done that for years. So the Carthians create these groups of ghouls just to subvert companies and organizations. So um, I quite like that idea of a, a splinter cell of ghouls to uh, do your dirty work in that way. Um, and it's generally considered that ghouls have a better life than in, with the Carthians than most others, but that's of no surprise. Um, the Crone have their votaries, who um, they can be anything from servants to possible protégés. Um, and it's interesting that the Crone kind of revere ghouls, so because a ghoul is a representation of creation. But this means ghouls don't have a good have a good time because the Crone believe in tribulation. So ghouls have a with the Crone have a tough life, um, and of course ghouls help with recovering mortal sacrifices for uh, various rituals for the uh, for the Crone. The interesting thing really will come with the Lankai, who are a good uh, counterpoint to the Crone in that sense. The Lankai obviously. Consider themselves above humanity, they're the chosen uh ones of God, you know, the in some respects. And so they see ghouls as just basic servants, you know, they're there they're there to carry their books around, to organise their their mass, um, and to again gather sacrifices. And the important things that it notes that the Lanka is they're unlikely to ever embrace their ghouls. In fact, they consider them very lucky to even be gifted with any Vitae whatsoever. Um, and there's a very uh, interesting uh, Theban sorcery ritual, which is designed to limit the disciplines that a ghoul can learn, even as far as preventing the ghoul from using disciplines whatsoever, because they believe it's that ghouls are beneath even being allowed to use uh, the gifts of, of uh, Longinus. Um... The autodrachal have a different position on this again. Um, ghouls either fall into being property, so they're servants, and they select these from the ghoul families that, they, uh, that they, they've established, or their potential protégés. The benefit of being property is you do your job and you're not bothered, or if you're a protégé though, it means constantly watched and constantly tested, so it's a question of really what's a better life. The main point to make for the autodruckle with regard to how they choose their protégés is they will choose them based upon uh, observation of the dragon's tail. This is where a member of the autodruckle will do something such as killing a mortal or destroying an established business or or setting fire to a home and watching the chain of events unfold and from that uh, picking out someone to... Turning to a ghoul and a potential protege. And then, of course, there's the absolute horrific life of being one of the Autodrakul's experiments. And then finally, we have the Invictus, who basically see ghouls as their serfs and, and uh, vassals. Um, these are submissive ghouls, and they establish their own form of uh, hierarchy. Uh, which the Invictus find a bit of a joke. Um, So there's kind of the idea of a Stockholm Syndrome with the Invictus ghouls. And also you find Invictus make use of their ghouls to be either proxies in court, uh, to be a courier because they mistrust modern uh, technology, or to be pawns in their mortal affairs. So there's quite a variation on how the Covenants make use of their ghouls. It crosses over in some places, but there's enough differences to uh, make them stand out. What are your cool. views
0: on that stuff, then? I wanted to touch on the idea of um, ghouls and disciplines because I always thought yes. this was one of the most interesting angles uh, in the game. Uh, I know in Masquerade the, essentially they gain the physical disciplines um, yes. celerity, potence and fortitude. Is that reflected in, in Requiem as well? That's, that's
1: definitely reflected in Requiem and they find it easier to learn the physical disciplines associated with their parent clan. clan um, right. But also, um, it notes that if you're of a bloodline, so if a vampire's of a bloodline, through expenditure of willpower, um, so you know how you mentioned that you spend a point of will. one of them spends a point of willpower and they become a ghoul. Mm. If you spend a point of willpower at each step along the blood bond, the uh, the bloodline speciality discipline can also be passed on and taught to the ghoul, right. so you can get very specialised ghouls. So obviously, you've invested a hell of a lot in them. This very yeah. act of of force of will upon the ghoul to corrupt it in such a way that it can then make use of whichever speciality discipline that you're uh,
0: touting. Well, I um, like the I really like the idea of ghouls who. Who develop beyond the physical disciplines, and not that you should have them all like that. But oh, I remember mean, no. well, my last uh, my last Vampire game, the idea that you can have one ghoul, who, for example, was had uh, who had been learning uh, thaumaturgy, or a ghoul who'd learned how to specialize in specs And I think these can re- make some very standout NPCs, um, and it ties in nicely to the concept of uh, ghoul mercenaries. So the ghoul may stipulate that. Fine, you, you pay me in blood, you don't pay me in blood. I'm particularly interested in this vicissitude thing that you speak of. Mm. Um, and I think that can add a, a large number of, uh, a large amount of color. But then the point that you make that um, there are vampires who don't want to teach them these things at all because they're not, uh, they're not worthy of learning these, these, you know, these sacred God-given powers uh, can set up a nice uh, angle of tension between the, the, the vampire and its ghoul. Where the ghoul might be yearning for the vampire to teach him these, you know, sacred tricks or, or blessed ideas or clan secrets, and yet if the vampire refuses, eventually this could start to erode the ghoul's loyalty, and that you know adds an extra dimension of uh, of colour to the relationship there, which I think is quite cool. Oh, definitely. That's
1: it's um it's quite interesting the way that they've um allowed ghouls to potentially learn speciality disciplines. It, it's um it just adds an extra uh, tool to any vampire's toolbox there and um, mm. some of the you mentioned um, mercenaries um, one of the bloodlines in um, I say bloodlines, sorry uh, Re- ghoul families so the equivalent of revenant families in um in requiem is definitely that they're a bunch of mercenaries they're a family that's lost. Uh, well, lost any knowledge of what they truly are, and hunting packs, after going after vampires. And,
0: Excellent.
1: Uh, that's quite a scary thing. You're going down an alley, you see a homeless person, you go, that's a an easy bite to eat, and then you're set upon by five or ten homeless people who are all part of this extended school family, and you've just become lunch. Um, brilliant. A bit of turning the table on a vampire. but uh, That's a brilliant idea, that is, yeah. It, cool. it maybe stops a a player character from being so blasé about killing people in an alleyway. You go, oh, not again. You're going to go hunt down there? Let's make you uh, work for your dinner for once.
0: Yes, indeed. Uh, very cool.
1: Cool. Is that it? I think that really is about it with um, anything that truly stands out as different in Ghouls in Requiem. There's obviously points about... Uh, through all families, such as how they age slower and how this can affect children, and it goes into detail about how you even start breeding a uh, a ghoul family, and that it's a, a very rare event, and that it's the the ability to be one of it within one of these ghoul families. So you have all the the benefits of being a ghoul, but you don't need to feed on blood so frequently. Mm. Uh, is only passed on via the the mothers in the family, and of course, the best chance of having more ghoul children is to have a ghoul ghoul copulation. But that leads, where well, I said it leads into the the dodgy subject of incest and how that again erodes the mind of these ghoul families. Um, mm. it, it's, if anything, um, I think ghouls for Requiem is is just as horrific to read in places and uh interesting bits of storytelling, especially if you're playing uh characters in a ghoul family
0: yeah um yeah but I keep coming back to that keep coming back to that idea as as a as a really strong chronicle concept um almost as if not more horrific than playing one of the one of the vampires themselves Because you still- you still have an element of humanity there you know you you still kind of yeah. are human, but yeah in a sort of horrible the hills have eyes way
1: yes in entirely. Um, And so obviously we're in the rules section of um, Requiem it introduces a whole host of new derangements for, in particular, ghouls. So, to represent how broken they can be, and of course they can be broken in many ways depending upon who their master is. Um, If there's any particular ghoul families I find quite interesting, um, there's one which is the Gravenor who are a Nosferatu-founded uh, ghoul family who, are, the hills have eyes, they're all a bit um, physically deformed and so hide out in their manor house. Uh, they keep these Mandragora willow trees. Um, but worse is, uh, is um, how they actually keep getting vampire blood. They have uh, an interesting way of going about that and it's definitely worth pl- uh Potential buyers to go out of that book and read it. It's, a, it's an excellent family to look into. Oh,
0: yeah, cool. Well, I think my, my favorite ghoul family has to be the, um, uh, the, the Obertus, uh but then I, I would date them back to the ones from the Dark Ages game, specifically the Akoimatai, the sleepless monks from Constantinople who tended the uh, the vast library of St. John Studius. Um, just the whole concept of a, of a monastery that's peopled by a group of ghouls. Uh, who again may or may not even know that they're ghouls. Um, so you know they go to mass and they receive uh, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, um, perhaps in ways that they don't really expect. Uh, and yeah, I think that makes for a fascinating, uh, fascinating concept right there.
1: Oh yeah, the what you just said, where they accept the 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 blood of Christ, and that's in fact you know the vampire blood that's being passed around. That's again yeah. um, a, a particular tool of the of the crone and how the Crone can keep cults of ghouls, and the ghouls are really none the wiser. They know they're passing around blood, and it's making them feel better, but they think it's some other form of of magic or just the very act of drinking blood, when in fact, yeah, they've just all been (laughs) blood-bound. Always good. (laughs) Always good. Um, So, with regard in-game, how um, your experience of using ghouls, because right now... In my, well, I say current. It's going to be a current vampire game again as we go into season two of it. My wife has a reoccurring ghoul character who's essentially the the taking on the persona of her vampire character, so the business can carry on, and it's an interesting uh, looking at the balance between being blood bonded and how that that means that a ghoul has a love for their master but it's never truly reciprocated at least some interesting bits of role play where I have to be this character that is this ghoul who goes yes yes I will do that for you so um what's your views on actually running ghouls in games have you seen much success with them any excellent bits of gameplay that's come out of it
0: well there's for me there's this two... or retainers too... in general well, yeah, I mean, okay, well, okay, then I'll then I'll mention three. Um, for, for two two ghouls. One is as I've just mentioned the the Accomitai, but I, I developed that a bit further. With um the initial session of a character's embrace, the first session of a vampire, the Dark Ages game, had a mm. character who was a a knight templar, who realised that um his mentor was in fact one of the undead, and lots of his brother knights every time they took mass were in fact imbibing his blood. Um, so he he saw this horrific thing coming. And, and for him, it was much worse because you know, he wasn't just selected for ghouling, he was selected for the embrace. Um, so that worked quite well as a foreshadowing of uh, here are these creatures who have lost humanity, and the players and uh, the character are filled with horror at this. And it, it is, is, in fact, only a pale shadow of the horror that's about to hit them. Uh, and that worked quite well. Um, I had a, a, a ghoul in a mage game that had a really peculiar genesis. Um, there was a vampire who was attacked by. Um, uh, life effect from a mage um that caught that the, the idea was that the um the mage wanted to cause the vampire to gestate a life form um and i had no idea what rules to use for this so you know <laughs> we went through this and I, I developed it as a ghoul um and what was interesting about this ghoul character was it was a it was uh, a ghoul that was given birth to by a vampire and the main con the main problems that this ghoul went around wondering was you know was she alive did she, was she a real creature what was she did she have a soul um what what, what place did she have in the world was she alive was she undead uh, and that was that uh, proved quite interesting in play um you know largely proceeding out of a totally off the wall um, on the fly life effect from a, a high level verbena the last one was in the same mage game, and this was um, an NPC, an acolyte, uh, who be- became to realise that you know that there were mages and what have you, and mm-hmm. the, the characters liked her so much they wanted her to awaken. And they kept coming up with a variety of methods to force this poor character's avatar to awaken, this poor NBC's avatar to awaken. Um, and as a consequence, a consequence of course, she was driven completely mad by this. Um, and in the end, uh, her avatar started to awaken, but her her mind couldn't accept it. So the avatar would would started to project out of her body and manifest oh. itself it manifests itself in dreams and as a strange supernatural phenomena and she was convinced that she was possessed or that she was being haunted or what have you but in fact it was her own spirit that was you know trying to get out of her body because she didn't she wouldn't awaken so it was trying to find some way uh, to awaken and in the end um in the end it killed her the experience uh so that takes us back to the concept of how an acolyte can provide a, a rather you know uncompromising mirror to the mage going Look what you've done to this poor woman, you horrible, horrible person. Um, so yeah, those would be the, the retainers and ghouls incidents from, from my own games that I think uh, stand out the most for me. What about you, Mike? Have you had much uh, much experience with these guys in games?
3: Uh, no. It's actually pretty interesting because I picked up ghouls as the first source book I ever read. And the entire point of the book, I think, is to bring ghouls to the forefront instead of having to be in the background. But mm. never really came up. They're mostly just henchmen on the sidelines. Right.
1: I'm trying to think of more exam- a few more examples of where I've seen ghouls used well or retainers used well and sometimes where it's got a little bit out of hand um, a particular time was in a Vampire the Dark Ages game where a, a friend's character so I was playing a, a Malkavian who was quite insane in French um, but uh, his character was uh, one of these Norse gangrel mm. who obviously had a ghouled wolf and it became cool. a, a running joke that whenever the um, the uh, player wanted to talk to his ghoul, it was like, why is this wolf always seeming to be so wise? He was like, yes, master, I shall go hunt them for you. It's like, no, this is a wolf. Stop. I must stop talking like he's from Narnia. <laughs> like it, got a, it got a little too extreme that this wolf was actually better at doing things than the player's own character. Um, Excellent. Uh, very cool. Uh, and then I think... Other things I've noted: um, Changeling, The Lost is kind of interesting because, of course, you can you, your way of introducing someone into their world is through uh, the pledge of um, one of the pledges, so they can they're kind of touched by the weird and and glamour. And it was a uh, a character's a uh, priest, so mm-hmm. his character was a was a doctor. Um, who was from I think the 60s or so and it's setting Venice so there's the view of well your character would more than likely be Catholic and the reason for um bringing this priest into his world was to reconcile what the Fae were with his Catholic upbringing was he cursed in some way were the Fae demons and the priest was to help re- you know, work work through his own psychological trauma um and that's been quite a good way of uh, making use of retainers and again using retainers to act as a mirror to the own to to the characters themselves.
0: Yeah, that does seem to be a recurring theme, huh? Um
1: otherwise, I think that's about it really with my own use of retainers. They're definitely a bad thing to forget about in a game. It should never be just another another gun to point at someone. It, it can be offer lots of uh Lots of different role-playing um, potential.
0: Yeah, we had a retainer once, a uh, major familiar, who was um, a three-million-year-old, slightly awakened monkey um, called Gilbert, <laughs> and, and he he could that's... use guns, but again, that's probably best left for another day. <laughs> All right, cool, Mark. Uh, I think we're just about done. Take us out of here. I think so. Okay, well, um, so for the, uh, um, for the Darkling episode number 17, our 20-minute sister show, I think we've gone uh, <laughs> yeah. deep, deep, deep into the world of ghouls and retainers. Um, so uh, I want to say a big thanks again to the Marquis von Wimenez for getting us started on this with his excellent uh, submission, which he sent in uh, to the email address. And for those of you who want to do the same or send us your praises, your curses, your suggestions or your salutations, that's uh, darker days Radio at Gmail dot com uh well of course um we are uh modern and uh up to date so we're not just limiting ourselves to email you can uh, join us on facebook again darker days radio, and as yesterday, you can follow us on twitter, which is uh surprise surprise darker days radio um so uh keep up with all the latest news there now um We'll be returning to um could be one of any uh, topics in the next full Darker Day show. We have a host of stuff to choose from, including a, an interview with um, the host of World of Darkness News. Um, we have some world, New World of Darkness rapid fires uh, to throw your way. And we're trying to sort something out uh, regarding a certain anniversary product, which has been doing <coughs> the rounds recently on the, internet, on the Internet. No prizes for guessing what that would be.
1: What the, uh, the vampire, or um, was it... Uh... make your Your own uh, make your own adventure what was that book they brought out there was only a few scanned in pages I uh, haven't looked at it myself yet but I think I got killed by El Diablo Verde
0: that just sucked that dude
3: (laughs) I I found out that there's a way to you can't win but you can stave off the inevitable by doing an endless loop and just going back and forth so El Diablo (laughs) won't kill you and the Sabat won't uh, turn you into a chair Right, it's, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go find
1: that out now. It's like if you play it as a true brew jar, then, is it? You just keep going around and <laughs> <true in> end <laughs> loop.
3: <laughs> uh,
1: Alright, we're done. Have a good night, thank folks. Bye, guys.
3: <laughs>